Hey, what's up, RUF? I'm Jason, coming to you from my dining room. I have my dining room table, and then I have a bookshelf that I've put on top of it and set my laptop on, and so that's how we're recording today. But, yeah, that's, that's where we're at. Just wanted you guys to know. I've got my fruit friends right here. I don't know how you're all coping with all the COVID-19 stuff, but I've made friends here, and I've made friends with a sourdough starter that I have in my fridge, and I've been making bread every week, and it's been great. So you guys can look forward to some of that the next time that we have the chance to get together for a chilly night or something. I promise you, I'll bring some of that bread. Uh, I'm looking forward to being on campus with all of you, uh, so hopefully sometime soon. But yeah, in the meantime, we'll just keep on doing what we're doing, this virtual ministry stuff. Uh, yeah, relying on God's grace through the midst of all of that. And that's what we believe we need to do all the time here at RUF. We're all about God's grace. We believe that you are never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace and never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. It's the truth we need to cling to when we were on campus. It's the truth we need to cling to now. And it's the truth we'll need to cling to continuing in the future. But right now we're just going to keep on going through our series that we've been teaching through in large group uh, over the Psalms, the songs that shape us. And today we're going to be going through Psalm 78, which is a song about faithfulness. And so Psalm 78 shows us how faithful God is to keep his promises and to care for his people. And it also shows how unfaithful we as God's people can be. So I'll pray and then we'll, we'll begin. Lord Jesus, um, we're grateful that you're the same today as you were when we were on campus, and you're the same that you'll be forever. So Lord, we praise you for that. We praise you for your faithfulness to us uh, when we're so unfaithful to you. Uh, Lord, I also pray for this time, uh, envisioning people watching this video or listening on podcasts uh, and me preaching it right now, just to a computer screen, I pray that you would make it sacred, that you would be present here with all of us whenever we, whenever we come to your word. Uh, and so Lord, would you bless this time? Would you yeah, give me the comfort and the confidence to preach in this space? Uh, Lord, we need you and we love you. We pray all of this in your strong and powerful name, Jesus. Amen. So Psalm 78 uh, it's, it's a long song, and so I won't be reading every verse or preaching over every single verse, uh, but that the nice thing about that is how we've kind of switched up large group for you to come to Zoom, um, talk about it a little bit, and then break into the small groups to be able to talk about the passage as a whole and talk about the sermon. And so you'll have space to go through some of the verses that I might not touch this, like, whatever you read it, this morning for me, uh, that I might not touch this morning. And so... We're just going to go through Psalm 78 in bits and pieces today, um, starting, starting with the, the psalmist's call to listen to God, uh, to listen to the teaching. And so essentially the psalmist just wants to walk his original listeners through uh, the history of the Israelites. And as he does this, this, the main idea will be to show that God is faithful, that he's faithful to his people. The Israelites needed to hear that back then because they were often unfaithful. And we need to hear that now because we are also often unfaithful. 
but we'll walk through our three main points, and that's really just guided by the introduction to this psalm, the first few verses, but first we'll look at inclining our ear, and then we'll look at the dark sayings of old, and lastly we'll look at God's glorious deeds. So let's read verses 1 through 4 together, which say, Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known, that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from our children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. So the psalmist starts by calling his listeners, calling his original audience to listen up. He says it twice. He says, give ear to my teaching and incline your ears to the words of my mouth. Now listen up, he says, because I'm going to tell you the dark sayings from of old, and I'm going to tell you about the glorious deeds that the Lord has done. And this is the introduction to the whole psalm. Um, And what comes after it is this back and forth and back and forth of the psalmist recounting God's work throughout Israelite history, throughout redemptive history, and also talking about how then the Israelites responded to God's work. So he takes the listener on this tour of redemptive history to show how faithful God has been, to see, you know, his glorious deeds and his mighty wonders. And he alternates between God's actions and the actions of the Israelites. And when he does that, it doesn't really put the Israelites in in the greatest of lights. And so that's what we'll see when we kind of go through the dark sayings from of old. But what the psalmist wants us to recognize is that we need to listen to the history that has come before us so that we can see God's work and so that we can properly respond to him by learning from the mistakes of the people who have come before us. And you have people that have tried to do that for you, tried to teach you um, from their mistakes and their wisdom that they've learned along the way. Maybe that happened when you started college. A bunch of people came to you and told you all the do's and don'ts of college, giving you advice, um, telling them or telling you the mistakes that they made along the way so that you can try to avoid them. That happened to me any number of times. Um, So my sister, Claire, she's a couple of years older than me. And so when I started college, the majority of people that I knew were juniors. They were Claire and Claire's friends. And some of them kind of took me under their wings to help me start off college well. Some of them pointed me in directions that worked really well for them, uh, like to join this fraternity or to take this professor for this class instead of the other professor. Uh, Another one is to get to the football games early so you can get a good seat. You know, for for those sorts of things, for those pieces of advice that they gave and that worked well for them, I listened. I paid attention to the things that work well uh, and I implemented those and they worked well for me too. But then the other side of advice that people gave would be something like, I tried this and it didn't work out for me. When they, when they gave me that type of advice, I had the opposite response. Some, yeah, some people told me to only join a couple of involvements my freshman year because they joined too many and they got burnout. out. And when I, when I heard that, I said, you know, that makes sense for you. I said this in my brain. I didn't say it out loud. That would have been really mean. Uh, but I, yeah, my brain was like, you know, it might not have worked out for you, but I bet I can make it happen. 
And so even though people told me not to join a bunch of involvements, I joined eight my freshman year. And I'm sure you can understand how that likely went for me. And so over the course of freshman year, I just stretched myself way too thin, way too thin. Uh, I got super involved. Uh, yeah, but by the end of my freshman year, I was still doing all right. Still had good grades, was still involved in those things. Uh, I was doing pretty well. But then sophomore year hit and classes start to ramp up. And you know, most of the time when you're a freshman in involvements, the things are kind of catered to you. So there are things for you to come to and begin to get plugged in. But when you're a sophomore, then some things are expected of you more than just to come to stuff. So I was doing more for those involvements. My classes were getting more and more harder. Um, and that's when it hit me. I was getting burnt out, but I looked back and I said, I'm doing the same stuff I did freshman year. So why should anything be different? And when all of that was happening, all of the classes were ramping up, involvements were ramping up, and I crashed. I got burnt out. I had been running from one thing to the next constantly. I was barely sleeping. Uh, and yeah, what people told me was gonna happen, happened. I didn't learn from their mistakes. They wanted to teach me. They wanted to help me um, live well, live better than they did based on their mistakes. And I didn't listen. I had to quit some of those involvements, and I really wish that I would have just listened to people from the start. That's what the psalmist is wanting us to do. He wants us to listen to the history of God's people and to learn from their mistakes. So I think that's our application from this section, and it's twofold. First, we need to learn about redemptive history, about the way that God has worked in his people throughout time. And second, we need to learn from the mistakes that the people have made who have come before us. We need to learn from the accounts of people in scripture, and we need to learn from older and more mature believers that we can interact with and have conversations back and forth today. So on the first part, we need to read the Old Testament. We need to read the New Testament. I don't know exactly what your exposure to, to the Bible was before coming to college, before finding RUF, um, but yeah, for me, I might have known a couple of Bible stories. I didn't go to church very often, uh, but even the Bible stories that I thought I knew, I definitely had wrong. Got learned the wrong lessons from them. Uh, and then I became a Christian, and I stayed the heck away from the Old Testament for quite a while. I lived in the New Testament because I thought, you know, Jesus is in the New Testament, so that's what I'll stick to. Now, while there is a lot about Jesus in the New Testament, we miss out on so much of him when we don't, when we don't know about what comes before. The Old Testament isn't just a few predictions or boxes that'll get checked off by Jesus's life, uh, but it's full of who Jesus is. It shows us God's character and the way that he interacts with his people. The Old Testament is full of God giving promises to his chosen people within the context of relationship showing them the ideal way to live in reliance on him. And they do that so that he can bring blessing to the world through his people. And that's, you know, that's just a sample of the context that the Old Testament gives to Jesus. And when we know that context, then we see Jesus as more full and more beautiful. In addition, you know, to listening and learning about redemptive history found in scripture, um, we need to learn from the mistakes of the people who came before us. That's why this psalm includes so much history. 
The psalmist wants us to hear the way that the Israelites reacted to God, reacted to his work, reacted to how he was present in their lives. And he wants us to see how mixed up their reactions are so that we can react well, to react in faith, to react in obedience to the Lord. And, you know, that's what we'll see as we move through this psalm. So in the next section, kind of verses 5 through 16, uh, we see that the Lord works in the lives of the Israelites in wonderful and miraculous ways, but they ignore it or they forget it. God brings them out of Egypt. by He divides a sea so that they can walk through on dry land and then lets the sea fall back on their enemies to protect them as they move forward. Then in all of this, he's leading them during the day by a pillar of cloud. They see a pillar of cloud as they walk. That's during the day. And then at night, when it gets darker, instead of it being a pillar of cloud, it's a pillar of fire. They're literally following a pillar of fire throughout the night. And when they get thirsty, they cry out, and he makes water spring out of a rock. That's, that's the context that they, they walk through in verse 5 through 16. And even with all of that evidence of the Lord's care for them, commitment to them, the Exodus generation, they, they still sin against the Lord. And that's what we see when we get to verse 17, which says, Yet they sinned still more against him, rebelling against the Most High in the desert. This is where we get to for our second point. The dark sayings from of old. The psalmist isn't saying that these dark sayings are like mystic riddles or incantations that witches say when they're like running around a cauldron. That's not what he's referring to here. In verse 2 and 3 of our psalm today, the dark sayings are equated with parables. And they're tied with the things that they know, that their fathers told them, that they've passed down along the generations. In a parable, it's a story with one major teaching point, and it's told in order to draw people in and to cause them to reflect on the deeper meaning found in that story. And so the dark sayings that the psalmist is talking about, that he includes, these are stories throughout Israelites' history that he wants us to learn from. They're parables that he wants us to learn from. And these stories, they don't paint the Israelites in the most favorable of light. These stories are all about the mistakes that ancient Israelites made throughout time. And the psalmist wants his original listeners and us by extension to avoid those mistakes. So we'll see, uh, yeah, we'll see them continue to make those as we look at verses 18 through 20, which say, They tested God in their heart by demanding the food they craved. They spoke against God, saying, can God spread a table in the wilderness? He struck the rock so that water gushed out and streams overflowed. Can he also give bread or provide meat for his people? So here the Israelites are testing God. He had miraculously saved them out of Egypt, the world's political superpower at the time. And he, he had just made streams come out of a rock to give them water, to, to quench their thirst. And they're in the middle of a desert when that happens. And that's how powerful God is. But nothing is enough for the Israelites. Even with all of that, they still test him. They test him because they're hungry and they don't trust him enough to provide food for them. 
Now, if we try to be the most charitable that we can to their motives, to their motivations, maybe they were wanting to see God's power more. They wanted to, to have God show his power, that he could be glorified uh, by providing for their needs. That's probably the most charitable listening of their motives. But if we try, if we try to be more honest and look at the accounts found in this psalm and in the book of Numbers where this occurs, in Exodus as well, uh, we'll see that the Israelites were hungry and they were thirsty and they really just wanted to have their own needs and desires met when they cried out for these things. They grumbled against the Lord saying, why did you bring us out of Egypt just to die in the desert of hunger? We wish we would have died in Egypt where at least we had water and food. They're only thinking about their own comfort and their own desires. It's almost like they're baiting or trying to coerce God into giving them that. They're treating God as if he's this wishing well, or they're thinking, man, if we just complain enough, we can annoy God into giving us what we want. Did you? Did you do that when you were younger? Did you ever test your babysitters to see how much you could get away with or what you could convince them to give you that your parents never would? I'm sure that I did, but in thinking about that, I, I remembered a, a time where I was uh, babysitting for my cross-country coaches, two twins. And so I'm over there, and they both try to do this test with me. So Jackson, the son, um, he tried to convince me that his mom lets him eat the entire box of Oreos as long as he finishes the milk that he dunks them in. Like, that was her one thing. You can have the whole box as long as you drink the, like, four ounces of milk that you've got left. It's like, no, that's not going to happen. And then the daughter tried to say that she only had to brush her teeth once a day, and she had already done that in the morning, so she didn't need to brush her teeth when she was getting ready for bed. Uh, but both of those tests I saw right through. I knew that they were testing me. I knew what their a mom would have wanted, what their dad would have wanted for them in those moments. And so I could see right through those tests. And maybe you tested your babysitters about how late you could stay up or how many scoops of ice cream your parents normally let you have. And, you know, when we, when we do this, when we put people to the test like this, we're doing it for our own selfish motivations. We're trying to get something that we want and to see if we could convince them to give it to us. And we do that whether what we're wanting is actually best for us or not. Now, we need to not do that to God. We need to not test him to try to make him give us what we want. But instead of testing him, we need to trust him. We need to trust that he knows what's best for us and that he'll give that to us in the perfect timing. Sometimes that means that we don't get what we want because it would be bad for us. Sometimes that means that we need to wait longer for what's best because he's doing work in the present moment. In verses 17 and 18, Testing God is equated with rebelling against him because they demanded what they craved. We don't want to be in rebellion against God by testing him. We want to trust him. And trusting instead of testing, it doesn't mean that we never tell God what we want, or what we crave, or what we desire. Um, instead, it's more about the posture in which we're telling him that. Are we demanding it from him, requiring it from him in order to follow him? Or are we expressing those desires open-handedly and trusting that he will give us, give us what's best in the right timing? We don't need to put God to the test. 
the world and our circumstances are going to do that enough. They're going to, to show us uh, his character as we trust him through the, the trials that we'll experience throughout our, our life here. And as we do that, we'll see that his character is true, that it's steadfast, and that he is faithful. I think we're in the midst of that right now. There are plenty of different ways that we could be putting God to the test in our own present circumstances. We could be demanding that he stops the spread of this virus and return the world back to what we want it to be. We could tell him that we'll withhold our worship from him until he does that. Now, trust me, if we did that, we would be the ones that would be missing out. God doesn't need our worship. He doesn't need anything from us. But if we put God to the test, we miss out on relationship with him. We'd be turning our backs on him just like the Israelites did when they wanted bread and meat more than they wanted God. That's what the next section of this psalm talks about. It says that the Lord is angry because they didn't trust him. Even though they didn't trust him, he sent bread and he sent meat. And these are some of the most fun verses from this next section, and I just wanted to read them, really. But it says, man ate the bread of angels. And then later on it says, God rained meat on them like dust. So God provides in abundance with what they kind of desire or crave. And with that, though, he also sent a plague. He sent a plague because they trusted more in food than they did in the one who provided that food. So in this case, God wanted to show them that what they wanted wasn't enough, that getting what they wanted wouldn't satisfy them. And so he showed them that it wasn't going to be bread or meat that saved them, but it was him who saved them and delivered them out of Egypt. It wasn't going to be the bread and the meat that they could trust in. He showed them that, that they needed to trust in him. And so despite all of that, they still sinned. Again, we find that. But God brings more and more righteous discipline, and then they turn to him in repentance. But we see that it's empty repentance. They turn to him just because they're uncomfortable, and they want the pain to go away. And so again, they're really just serving their own comfort instead of trusting in the Lord. That's what we get to when we get to verse 37, which says, their heart was not steadfast towards him. They were not faithful to his covenant. With all that's happened so far in the psalm, uh, which really has just talked about what's happened in history up to the point of the psalmist, God has every single right to turn his back on his people. They've ignored his work on their behalf. They've never been content with just him. They've always wanted more. They've turned their back on him. But now we get to turn our attention to what the psalmist talks about in verse 4, when he says that he will tell of the glorious deeds of the Lord and of his might and of the wonders that he has done. Now this psalm, it's full of glorious wonders, of glorious actions of the Lord, bringing the Israelites out of Egypt through the sea on dry land, leading and guiding them with a pillar of fire, feeding them with the bread of angels, and giving them meat in abundance. He leads them into the promised land. He defeats their enemies. Now, all of that is glorious, but the thing that sticks out to me as most glorious about the Lord is how he responds to the unfaithfulness of his people. 
We see that in verses 38 through 40. So let's read that now. Yet he, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often and did not stir up all his wrath. He remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes and comes not again. How often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. God is compassionate and he restrains his anger often. Now, sometimes people view God in the Old Testament differently than they view God in the New Testament. They say, you know, in the Old Testament, God is just this vengeful and legalistic God. And then in the New Testament, he is gracious and he's kind. They see this difference there. But would you be surprised if one of the earliest ways that God describes himself, uh, it's, it's found in Exodus 34, uh, verse 6. And this verse is also, it's the most frequently quoted or cited or alluded to verse in the Old Testament. So when the Old Testament quotes back to something earlier in the Old Testament, this is the verse that comes about most often. And this is what it says. It says, The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's how God defines himself. And that's what he shows himself to be here in our psalm. The Israelites, their hearts weren't steadfast toward him, but he was steadfast to them. He's compassionate and he restrains his anger often. That's who God is and how he relates to his people. That's how he relates to you in Christ. Now, compassion and the restraint of anger are often really surprising, especially when someone wrongs you. It's surprising and it takes people aback, but it can be such this beautiful moment. Now, I know I've told this story to some of you over the course of the past year, but it sticks out in my mind as one of the few times where I feel like I represented Jesus well when I was living in my fraternity. Now, otherwise, if I would have done that more often, I would have more stories and wouldn't have to just keep reusing this one over and over again. But there was one night my freshman year, uh, I lived in a four-man room, so I had three other roommates, uh, and I, I came back to the house late after a night of studying and probably mostly procrastinating. But I, I lived, I had, my bed was on the bottom bunk. And so I came in, and when I, it was late, so I didn't turn the light on. I walked in, I was about to jump into bed, and I, I smelled something weird. It's like, oh, that's not good. Uh, so I whipped out my phone, turned on the flashlight, and the light illuminated this scene uh, where my top bunkmate had, he had gone out uh, and had a little bit too much to drink that night, and he had vomited down the, the ladder, and my laundry hamper is under there. So down the ladder into my laundry hamper, and then over onto my bed, right where my pillow was. I was like, oh man. I had anger, I had frustration, uh, but by the Lord's grace, I was led towards compassion instead. And so I made sure that he was okay. Uh, and then I, I cleaned up. I did a load of laundry at 2.30 in the morning and I slept on the couch out in our other room. 
And the next morning, when my bunkmate had woke up, he came and he apologized to me. And I was sitting out there with uh, one of our other roommates. And the other roommate said, man, you're lucky that Jason, it was Jason's bed and not mine, because I would have woke you up with a punch to the face. He's like, dude, Jason, like, why didn't you do that? And in one of the few times where I, I, I stepped out in faith uh, and the, the Lord gave me courage to speak specifically of the gospel in that moment, I told him, you know, like, I've done way worse than puke in God's bed. And so he's forgiven me. And so I want to forgive you. And I want to um, yeah, give you that grace because of how much grace the Lord has given to me. It was one of the few times I responded with grace in both my actions and my words, living with those guys in my fraternity. It gave me the opportunity to share the gospel with them. Now, on one hand, I was grateful that it wasn't a weekly occurrence that I I came back uh, to the room with puke in my bed. Uh, But I do wish that I would have had more weekly occurrences of talking about the gospel with them. I wish I would have taken more opportunities to do that with those guys. And I think that's a big part of our application from this section. We need to share about God's compassion and how he restrains his anger. But in order to do that, we need to recognize our own shortcomings and failings and rebellion. We need to recognize how much wrath the Lord has towards sin, the sin that we commit and that we live in, uh, because we're really not all that different from the Israelites described here in this psalm. Or at least I know that I'm not all that different. The psalmist here, he's writing all of this because he knows we're not very different. And whether you're a Christian or not, all of us have a nature that's predisposed towards sin and rebellion against God. We need to listen and remind ourselves and put ourselves in the place of these Israelites who are not faithful to God. Because that's true of us too. Only then will we be able to truly experience his compassion his restraint of anger, and his faithfulness. If it weren't for all those things, we'd just be smoked. But after we experience that, after we recognize our own rebellion and sin, uh, when we trust in Christ, he gives us a new nature so that we can live out of that. But we're battling amongst both of those. And the Lord is kind and he's gracious to us. And so once we do experience that, once we experience the grace the freedom from the wrath that is ours, that we deserve, then how can we not tell the coming generations of the Lord's compassion and of his great and glorious and wonderful deeds, just like the psalmist is doing here? But at this point, the psalmist only had what had happened up to his point in history. But we have more. We have the most glorious and wonderful deeds of the Lord because we have Jesus. We have Jesus who took on the wrath of God on the cross, and that made God able to restrain his anger from pouring out the wrath on us because Jesus took all of it on our behalf. Jesus is compassionate, and he cares for us. He's the fulfillment of verses 38. He's compassionate. He atones for our iniquities, and he doesn't destroy us. He restrains his anger often because he poured out his wrath on Christ. On the cross. And so we have the freedom to be compassionate because he's compassionate. We have the freedom to live in the truth that he has taken up all of the wrath and know that he relates to us as a faithful God even when we're faithless, even when we're unfaithful. 
The Lord is kind and gracious, and he is merciful. He abounds in steadfast love to us. And so we can rejoice in that, and we can share about the glorious works of the Lord in the scriptures and in our lives as well. And so let's do that. Let's do that as we go out and interact with our family members when we're quarantined and we're frustrated. Uh, Let's give grace because of how much grace the Lord has given to us. Let's give grace and share about those glorious deeds with our classmates uh, when maybe they frustrate us. Uh, Let's give grace to ourselves because we desperately need it in this time. We need to receive the grace that the Lord has given to us instead of trying to do all of the things that we want to do instead of going after the things that we crave and we desire. But we should turn to the Lord, receive the grace that he's given to us, and rest in that, knowing that he cares for us, knowing that he is faithful, because that's who he is. Let's pray. Lord, we we desperately need you. Uh, We need you to be faithful, because more often than not, we aren't. But Lord, we, uh, we see your hand in redemptive history all throughout the scriptures of being so faithful and committed to your people. And so we, we recognize that you are committed to us, that you're faithful to us. But Lord, we don't want to go on living, uh, being unfaithful. So would you give us the strength um, to obey, to follow you, uh, but that it would be rooted in the grace that you've given us, that we don't try to obey uh, to get reprieve from trials, that we don't try to obey to just get what we want from you, Uh, but Lord, that we recognize all that you have done and out of abundant joy of the grace that you've given us, um, trusting that you know what's best for us, that we follow you obediently, that we turn to you when we fail, um, knowing that we'll receive grace then again. But Lord, would you give us the strength to follow you Lord, would you give us the strength to rely on your grace amidst all that's going on? And we need you, Lord. We desperately need you. We pray all of this in your strong and powerful name. Amen.